We're going to be in the book of Malachi still uh, as we lead up to to Christmas this year, going through one of the minor prophets. Um, Last book in the Old Testament, written about 400 years before the birth of Christ. Kind of the last word we get before a period of silence. We uh, started last week in Malachi chapter 1, and uh, going to be this week in Malachi chapter 2. Uh, we started last year by, or last week, by talking about the fact that these people, at the time of Malachi, were kind of a disillusioned people who had become a bit complacent. They were a people in need of a wake-up call. They had drifted off into kind of doubting God's love. And so the book starts out with a great declaration. The first words, verse 2 of the book, after the introduction are, I have loved you, declares the Lord. But the people doubt God's love. They say, well, how have you loved us? Because they're looking around and they're not feeling that, right? And then God responds with an affirmation of his love for them. And then we see the other problem that the people had, that the people were not worshiping God. They weren't honoring God's name. God's name is to be great among the nations. But the people weren't worshiping God as God. They were bringing before him kind of these lame, half-hearted sacrifices and calling it worship. And so that's what we looked at last week. We were confronted in our own complacency, in our own doubts of God's love. And so today, we're moving from people's unfaithfulness to God, which we'll still see in chapter 2, but we're also going to see that when we're unfaithful to God, we also, one, one, one effect of that is that we're also unfaithful to one another. And when we're unfaithful to one another, that causes all sorts of hurt and pain. And so there might even be some kind of hurtful things that are even brought up in this text today. It's kind of the the beauty, I guess, of going through Scripture is is we trust that God's going to tell us what we need to hear, even if it's not what we want to hear sometimes, right? And so we're going to look at God's people being unfaithful in three particular ways today in which they were unfaithful. We're going to be talking about the fact that when people are unfaithful to one another, it hurts. The effects of the unfaithfulness of other people spread deep and we're going to talk about unfaithful priests and unfaithful marriage unions and unfaithful spouses because that's what Malachi 2 talks about today. So I just invite you to open up to Malachi chapter 2 where we'll read together verses 1 through 16. If you're able to, let's stand as we read God's word. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces." the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace, and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. 
for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And, was, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You can be seated. I'm going to move through the first point relatively quickly. Just so you know, um, this was the one that really rocked me really good. Um, and, and so I'd, I'd encourage you to spend some time on your own, but because we want to keep things to a normal time and going through a whole chapter is difficult, the one we're going to kind of skim over, which we shouldn't skim over, but we have to, is verses 1 through 9 in chapter 2. It's, 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 God's, it's a message of God's response to some unfaithful priests. You saw that right away, right? In verse 1, you see in verse 1, it's kind of it's following up from what we looked at last week. Remember, three times in chapter 1, we saw God say, Great is my name, and it should be great among the nations. That's God's desire. And he was talking to the people who were bringing before him lame sacrifices, literally lame sacrifices. But now, in chapter 2, God turns his attention to the leaders of the people. He's going to talk to the priests. And he says, and now, O priests, this command is for you. So he's zeroing in on these guys. And he's saying, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. That's the problem with the priests. They should have been the people as the people were bringing these lame sacrifices that weren't acceptable to God. The priests should have had the heart and the guts to tell the people, what are you thinking? Do you know who God is? Do do you not know the God that we worship? And if you really knew the God that we worship, you would not bring that crippled, almost dead lamb. He deserves better than that. But the priests didn't honor God's name. And so they didn't even say anything when the people were bringing those sacrifices. The other problem that the priests had, the other reason that they're called faithless or unfaithful, is in verse 5. It talks about the fact that the priests are supposed to be, according to the covenant of Levi, the people that stand in awe of God. Right? The priests, the leaders of God's people, ought to always be in awe of God. These priests had lost their awe of God, and so they let people kind of do whatever they wanted to do. And then we see in verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, but you have turned aside from the way. 
You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. The priests were supposed to be examples for God's people of this is the way you ought to live. But they had turned aside from the way. They were doing their own thing. And then they were supposed to be the people that guarded knowledge and had true instruction coming out of their lips to God's people. But instead, they were causing people to stumble by their instruction. These priests had messed up. They were unfaithful priests. God's first response then to the unfaithful priests is to remind them of their calling. That's what verses 4 to 6 are all about. We could spend a lot of time here, but I don't want to spend, I mean, I want to, but we shouldn't spend a lot of time here. Verses 4 to 6 are God's reminder to his priests of his initial covenant with them, with Levi. Levi was the first of the priests, right? And so he's saying, remember my covenant with you. And he goes over all of the good things about the covenant. If you wanted to read more about that, you could go to Exodus 32, 25 to 29. That's where God establishes his covenant with Levi. And now, many years later, God is reminding his people through Malachi of that covenant that he had made. God's God's priests were supposed to do this. They were supposed to lead people to honor God. They were to themselves supposed to stand in awe of who God was. And they were supposed to live godly lives in front of God's people and teach them. And they weren't doing any of those things. So the question is, how is God going to respond to that? Does God just take it lightly and say to these priests, these leaders of God's people, and say, eh, you know what? You're doing your best. I'm glad you gave it a shot. Thanks for trying. That's not at all God's response. Did you see how harsh God's response is? Did you catch that? Did you, did you see that in verse 2? God's response, he says, I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Actually, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. And then he says, this is going to affect your kids, priests. I'm going to rebuke your offspring. And then, gross, really. Did you see the rest of verse 3? God says to his priests, not, well, it's okay. It's okay if you're just kind of giving me whatever you got. He's saying to them, because of your unfaithfulness, I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. God is not taking the unfaithfulness of his leaders very lightly. He's taking it very seriously, isn't he? We need to hear this, right? This is not just, this is for them, but this is also for us. We need these reminders as well. We need to hear warnings sometimes. Verse 9 has has one more warning from God. He says, So I make you despised and abased before all the people. Right? These, These priests, probably, if they're like me, they probably, even though the people were kind of like being disobedient to God and bringing him lame worship, rather than speak the truth to them and tell them that's not acceptable, they were trying to like keep the people happy. That's what I try and do a lot. And so they weren't willing to tell the truth, right? They thought, I'm going to get these people to like me by not telling them the things that they don't really want to hear. I know they don't want to hear that, so I'm not going to tell them the truth, right? That's probably what they were thinking. But ironically... God has made them despised and abased and humiliated before the people because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Leaders, as leaders, elders in the church, you need to hear this. Deacons in the church, you need to hear this. Sunday school leaders, parents in the church, you need to hear this. We need to be people that do what God's priests were supposed to do. This applies to us because in the New Testament, we're called priests, right? And not just for a select group of people. 
We're all called priests now. The priesthood of all believers is what we call that, right? And so this applies to us. We ought to be the kind of people who honor God's name. And if we're not the kind of people that honor God's name, God doesn't look lightly at that. We ought to be the people that stand in awe of God's name. We ought never to lose our... Listen, uh, Sunday school teachers... It's a hard job that you're doing. Nursery workers, Awana workers, youth group leaders. When, you, when you're teaching children, that's a, that's a hard job. You're leading a Bible study of adults, maybe. That's a hard job, and it can get taxing. And what you can begin to do after time is you can just, like, I know how to do this, and you just crank it out. You know how to, like, even if you didn't prepare, you can just like, well, I'm just doing, you know, I'm just doing Awana again. It's just another thing that I do. Be aware, if you're in a position where you're teaching others, don't ever lose the awe of God. You can't teach well. You can't lead well if you've lost your awe of God. So cultivate that in your life. Parents, are you teaching your kids? You're priests in, in some ways to your children. So when it says things in verse, like in verse, uh, let's see, verse 7. Verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Listen, parents, that, that's true of you. Your kids should seek knowledge from you. You should be giving your kids true instruction. I can't be the only one, and your Sunday school teacher can't be the only one, teaching your children the Bible, teaching your kids about Jesus. That's your job. Dads especially, you're called to be spiritual leaders in your homes? Are you leading your family in worship? Are you leading your family through a time of devotions? Husbands, are you, are you doing that with your wives? That's what we're called to do. We ought to be priests who have true instruction that comes from our mouths and lives to match it. That we don't cause people to stumble in any way by the way that we live. So this does apply to us, and a lot of it applies to me um, as a pastor as well. We want to move on to the second point. Second point comes from verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12 is God's response to unfaithful marriage unions. Verse 10 just says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The problem that Malachi is seeing in God's people is that they're not being faithful to each other. They're supposed to be family, right? They've all been, first of all, created by God, but then adopted by God. He has called them His people. He is their father, their family. But they're not getting along. They've been faithless to one another. And because they're not getting along and being faithless to one another, they're profaning the covenant. This, again, of course, applies to us as the church, right? As God's, God's people, called by God, adopted by God, put in together in the same family, we've got something against somebody else in the church, then we need to address that. We must be faithful to one another in the church. It's God's call for His people. If we don't do that, we're profaning the covenant in some way. But then God gets more specific in verse 11. This is when He starts talking about marriage. And the rest of this passage actually is going to be about marriage. Look at verse 11. It says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination. Okay, so so they've been faithless, been charged with that, but then it, he, he ramps it up even more. An abomination, that's a strong word. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. 
you're wondering, what did they do that's so bad? Those are some harsh words. What is it that they've done that's so bad? Look at the rest of verse 11. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Married the, now, now, this is not addressing marrying somebody who's a foreigner. That's not, that's not a problem, okay? Interracial or interethnic marriage, not a problem at all um, for God. The problem is who these people are worshiping. You see, God's people in Malachi's day, part of their kind of slide, their drift away from total commitment to God was they had begun to marry people who worshiped some other God. A dangerous thing. God doesn't take that lightly. See, God had given this command back in Deuteronomy many years before. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. You can go there if you want. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. Here's God's command to His people. Turn back there. Opened right up to it. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's what God says. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And why? Verse 4 says why. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Okay? That's why God's command to His people is you don't get married to somebody who's not one of my people. Because you'd be tempted to follow after their gods. In Malachi, he's like a good dad. Look at verse 12. His, his prayer of response seems kind of harsh, but look at verse 12. He says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The, the picture that I got in my mind as I was reading that, trying to understand why he would pray something so harsh, that God would cut off some of his people. Why would Malachi, who loves God's people, why would he pray that God would cut some of them off? It's because he knows how serious this is. Think of where they're at in history. They had just been punished by God, sent away into exile for their disobedience to God for a hundred some years. Right? And they had been punished for their disobedience. And now Malachi's reading the law and he sees that they're still being disobedient in these same ways. He says, no, no, no. Don't you see where this got you? I pictured him as like uh, the son of an alcoholic father who, who lived his whole life watching what alcohol did to his family. And he's looking back and he, he's remembering the effects of that. And so when that dad catches his teenage son drinking, he's not going to respond lightly. He's going to respond very harshly because he does not want to see his son go where his dad went. Right? Right? And that's the kind of thing that we see with Malachi here. He's remembering his nation's history, seeing where it led them, and he sees them doing the same things that the people used to do, and he says, no, don't do that. Don't get involved in that. As attractive as that might be, I know some of these foreign women who are worshiping foreign gods might be super cute, but don't go there. Right? their application in this for us? I'd say so. You could turn in the New Testament and go ahead and do that to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'd like you to read on your own sometime verses 14 to 18. I'll just read verse 14 here. This is what it says in, in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Don't be unequally yoked. It's the same thing that Malachi is saying to God's people. That that in the New Testament, God is saying to His people through Paul. Right? Don't be unequally yoked. Let me apply this to to one specific group of people first and then to a second larger group of people, meaning everyone. First group, I want to address single people. Now this might be single adults. This might be middle school students, high school students, right? You need to hear this from God and take it seriously. When you're considering who it is that you'll date, I'm not even talking about marriage, I'm just who it is that you'll date, the number one condition needs to be this. Does this person worship and submit to Jesus. Not do they have some general vague belief in God. Not do they go to church sometimes or even regularly. The question has to be, does this person worship and submit to Jesus? And ladies, you could tag on to that. You could tag on to that. Will this man be capable of being a spiritual leader in our relationship? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, then you just don't pursue anything at all. It's done. That's the number one condition. If that one's not met, you don't pursue anything else. It doesn't matter if he has nice hair. It doesn't matter if he's one of the rare guys in the world who actually smells decent, right? Like It doesn't matter if he, if he says some things to you that make you feel good and he gives you a lot of attention when nobody else does. It doesn't matter if everybody else would really love to date this guy and marry this. I don't care. If he doesn't worship and submit himself to Jesus, stay away. Let some, don't do missionary dating. You can date a missionary, um, but, don't, but don't seek to win people over to Christ by dating them to Christ. Let somebody else do that, right? All right, you get that. That, that limits you, though. You know that, right? Like middle school, high school students, it's going to feel like everybody else in your class, all of your group of friends, they're all dating somebody. You just want to do it, too. And there's, there's somebody that actually likes you. And so, so you want to maybe, go, don't do it. Don't lower your standards. Single adults, it, it, it's, it's just probably harder for you. You might have a strong desire to be married, right? And maybe accompanying that strong desire to be married is, is, is a, 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 a fear of remaining single. What that could do is it could cause you to just kind of lower the bar a little bit. Kind of overlook the most important condition. Don't do that cost that you'd have to pay is way too high. And then the final point before we talk about Jesus a little bit, which is really the final point. So the second to last point, verses 13 to 16, God's response to unfaithful spouses. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What's in, what's in mind here? They're wondering, well, why? What, what, what's so bad, God, in verse 14? They ask that question. It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He's talking here about divorce. That's happening now amongst God's people in Malachi's day. These people had made a covenant commitment to one another in marriage. And they've been unfaithful to that commitment. Now, a lot of times when we think of an unfaithful spouse, we think of unfaithfulness only kind of being related to adultery. That's not the only thing that's in mind here. That's certainly probably a part of it. 
but they're being unfaithful to the promise that they made. They made a vow, like, till death do us part, right? That's what they said. That's what we've said. And these people are backing out of that commitment, that promise. They're being unfaithful to one another, to the vows that they've made to one another in that way. See it again in in verse 16, which, by the way, verse 16, you may have noticed when I read that, my translation might have said something quite different than yours. Um, And we'll talk about that in a moment. We'll get back to that. We're going to talk about God's response. So divorce is kind of what's in mind here in verses 13 to 16. What's God's response to that? Well, verse 13 talks about how that when we're unfaithful with one another, that does something to our relationship with God. There's some damage that gets done there vertically when we're unfaithful in our horizontal relationships. So verse 13 is about. Verse 16 is interesting. You know, a lot of times when people seek divorce, one of the reasons is it just feels like there's so much, so much tension and so much hurt. And divorce seems like the best option, like it's going to be the way to escape that, right? That this is going to bring peace finally in my life. Divorce is going to be the thing that, that brings peace. When according to verse 16, it actually brings Says, God says it covers his garment with violence. So ironically, the one who's seeking after peace actually just almost invites on themselves some more problems. And those of you who have been divorced, those of you, I, I doubt that there's anybody here that's unaffected by divorce in some way. Right? We've all, we've all and, and anybody that's been involved, most of the people that have been divorced say it's the, the most difficult thing they've faced in their whole life. It has, it has consequences and ramifications that never go away, right? And, and so, so the people engaged in the, in the divorce itself, it, it's hurtful to them. It's hurtful to extended family. It's hurtful to children, right, who now have part of their identity stripped away and have to pack a bag to go visit mom or dad. It, it's hurtful to adult children of divorced people in ways that maybe are unexpected. Divorce just simply hurts. That's the reality of it. It's not what God intended. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Did He not, speaking of God, did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? See, marriage was not just some idea that we came up with because we really love people and and that's like a human idea. Marriage is something that God has instituted and ordained. It's His idea. And when two people come together, it's God that has joined them together. Remember when Jesus said that in in Mark 10.9? He says, "What, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Right? acknowledging that, that, that marriage is, is something that not, it's not just a human thing. It's something that God has been involved in, intimately involved in. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And so there's, there's plenty of pain that comes with divorce. And I, I mentioned kind of a translation challenge with verse 16. You, you heard my, my uh, the English Standard Version says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, okay? That's also what you'd read in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, something very similar like that. You'd also read something like that in, in the NIV if you have the NIV that was published in the last three years or two years. But if you have the older NIV, if you have the NASB, there's a couple of translations that translate it different. So if you can go ahead and put that slide up there, just so you can see, um, there's, there's the difference, and it's quite a difference. Some have said that this is 
the hardest or one of the hardest things to translate in all of the Old Testament. Anytime you translate something from one language to another, there's things that like, I just, I can't tell from the context or anything or the way the, the words are structured. We don't know exactly how this was intended to be translated. Okay? So, some translations translate it, I hate divorce. God's saying that. So, so, so the hatred is God's towards the reality of divorce, right? The other one is, is different. The man who hates and divorces his wife, okay? It, it's the man who's hating, and, and by his hating, he's divorcing, or by his divorcing, he's hating, right? And the, and the meaning is actually quite different between those two. And I just wanted to point it out because I don't want to just like run over that and say, oh, well, but, but the reality is, what, whichever way you translate this, it's certainly clear from the rest of Scripture that God delights in marriage. And God does not delight in divorce. Right? We see that from, from the rest of Scripture. So application for us, a couple applications for us from this. One is this. There's a command. There's actually two commands in this passage that I think we can apply directly to us. Look at the end of verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of you. This is to married people. And then look at the end of verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God is saying through Malachi to his people who are married, he's saying, be faithless faithful, but he's saying, guard yourself. Did you hear that? Twice. He says, so guard yourself. At the end of verse 15 and at the end of verse 16, guard yourself. When do you guard yourself? When you're being attacked, right? Like, like you don't normally walk around like kind of with your guard up, but if you, if you feel an attack coming on, you, you guard yourself. Do you think, maybe you're feeling here this morning, married couples, maybe you're feeling here this morning as though your marriage is under attack. Or maybe you're not even feeling that at all. But let me assure you that Satan does not like marriage. It wasn't his idea. It was God's idea. And Satan loves to steal and kill and destroy. And so he'll seek to do that in any way. And so even if you don't feel like your marriage is under attack, just a quick warning to you, to all of us who are married, that your marriage probably is under attack. And so we ought all to listen to this commandment to guard ourselves and how do we do that in our day and age? How do we guard ourselves against adultery? That there's always that temptation in marriage, right? So how do you guard yourself against that? Any relationship that you have with somebody of the opposite sex, your wife or your husband ought to know everything about that. If you have a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex and there's things about that relationship that you don't share with your spouse, you're not guarding yourself. You're opening yourself up to all sorts of mess. Okay? We can guard ourselves from all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things that can come in and destroy marriage. Money is one of those things. So if, if you're disagreeing as a, as a married couple about money, go to somebody and get some help with, with making a budget or whatever it is. All sorts of things that we could list um, as ways in which we need to guard ourselves. We need to be proactive with our marriages. We need, are, are, you, are you seeking to build? Like husbands, you taking your wives out on dates? Jeremy, you taking your wife out on a date, right? Um, we, 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 we need to do this. We, we need to invest in that. I know life is busy. I know there's a lot going on. 
But guard yourself. Guard your marriage. Spend time getting to know each other. Maybe you need to go to one of those Family Life Weekend to Remember conferences or something like that. If you're struggling in your marriage, would you come and get some help? What's the body's here for? We had a number of people from our church do a two-day seminar thing a while back so we would know how to better help people who have a marriage that's in trouble. Don't make a decision that's going to affect you for the rest of your life on your own. Come to the body for help want to help come to me i'll maybe try and help you myself or refer you to somebody who can help you more don't ignore problems that you have in your marriage guard yourself scripture says divorcers now now scripture lays out a couple of biblical reasons that that make divorce acceptable in some situations never preferable but acceptable and that is uh the ones that are clear in scripture are that adultery and the other one, a desertion by an unbelieving spouse. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but that's not what Malachi is really spending time on. Anyone who's been affected by divorce, though, knows that divorce hurts. We know that that's true. I want you to know, though, too, that if, if you've experienced the pain of divorce, if you're currently experiencing the pain of divorce, in no way is that some sort of unforgivable sin. God's grace is sufficient to cover even the pain of divorce. You need to know that, right? As a body, we want to care for you, come alongside and help you in any way. And as a body, we want to be all about strengthening marriages. We don't know exactly how to do that if you're not talking to people about your marriage, though. I'm going to close, as we will, with every one of these, these messages during Advent by saying, well, how does this point ahead to Jesus? Because here's the truth talked about unfaithful priests, unfaithful marriage unions, and unfaithful spouses. Um, Maybe some of that hit, maybe it didn't, but the truth is we're all unfaithful people, right? Aren't we? We're unfaithful to God. We're unfaithful to one another. We're we're just an unfaithful people. So how is God going to respond? We saw some pretty harsh responses here, right? In Malachi, God's not okay with unfaithfulness in his people. God's not okay with that. Malachi makes that very clear, that God is not okay with unfaithfulness in His people. He had to do something about it. That's why the people in Malachi's day longed for a Messiah to come. You want to know what God did about our unfaithfulness? He sent Jesus. That's what God did about our unfaithfulness. God's response to our unfaithfulness was to send His Son. And His Son was faithful. Wasn't He? Jesus, the Son, was always faithful to the Father. It says in John 17.4, in John 17.4, Jesus says, as He prays to the Father, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. Jesus was always and totally, completely faithful to the Father. Then, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll end there. You turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is a passage often read at weddings, and that's a fitting place to read it. But the mystery here is that this is actually about Christ and the church. Jesus was not just faithful to the Father. Jesus was also faithful to His bride, the church. He was faithful to His faithless bride, the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, and I want you to notice all the verbs. What, what God does for His bride. Listen. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's not us, right? We don't come before God without spot or wrinkle or blemish. We're filled with spots and wrinkles and blemishes because we are an unfaithful people. But Jesus desiring to present us to the Father without spot or wrinkle or blemish gave himself up for us. In the same way, then it says, verse 28, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. That's what Jesus does for the body. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The good news, listen, the good news is not that we can try really hard to be faithful. The good news is that in our unfaithfulness, Jesus was faithful. He was faithful completely and fully to the Father, and He has been completely and fully faithful to us, to His church. Our response to that ought to be to repent. Repent of our unfaithfulness. Acknowledge it before Him. Acknowledge that, that, that we, have, we have been unfaithful to God. And we have been unfaithful to one another, even those that we made commitments to. And so as this unfaithful people comes together before our faithful God, our only hope is in Jesus, who lived a life of perfect obedience, it says in Romans 5.19. And you could read all of Romans chapter 6, because through faith in Christ we are united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. And we're no longer slaves to sin, this is good news too, that we're no longer slaves to sin. We, faith, unfaithfulness is kind of our natural drift, but by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can turn and repent from unfaithfulness and trust in Jesus and be saved and receive His faithfulness in replace for our unfaithfulness. So would you, Christian, would you turn from unfaithfulness in each of the ways that we looked at this morning? You are God's royal priesthood. Would you never stop being in awe of God? You are the ones that God has called into a special, unique relationship with Himself. Don't spend most of your time, don't make a commitment or make a partnership or be unequally yoked to people who do not worship Jesus. Right? Stop being unfaithful. Make a commitment that I will not be unfaithful to you, God, in that way. And those that are married, guard yourselves. I don't know exactly how you're supposed to do that. I don't know how you apply this exactly to your marriage. You know your marriage. Maybe it means you get help. Maybe it means you plan a date. I don't know what it means. But guard yourself in your marriage. God is faithful, and we're thankful.